I'm Robert Fanner. And I'm Alva Chua. You are listening to Misanthropy. Alva, you are going to lead me on a wild adventure today and tell me all about Bungie. Uh, that's right. Um, more specifically, the lore and storytelling behind uh, most of Bungie's biggest titles. Um, Bungie, who are probably most famously known for Halo, um, are now currently in charge of Destiny, which, you know, well, has an interesting way of presenting its lore, shall we say. Um, and McCartney in space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, we, I don't think we can use that in uh, today's episode, as much as I would love to. Mm. Um, I, he seems like a particularly litigious elderly man oh yeah i'm i'm sure i wonder if there's some interesting remixes of his work <laughs> see, yeah. yeah i mean he's a he's a big fan of fan of uh backwards masking on stuff you know surely if we play the backwards um but yes uh so they've got an interesting relationship with storytelling and um considering that they're a company that's developed alongside well both pc and console gaming over mm. the years in a very high profile sense but also had a pretty like pretty strong engagement with the idea of telling stories through games in well across all of that time their particular perspective and approach to it is something i found kind of interesting um even more so after like a recent engagement with destiny 2 so this is something i hadn't really realized until mm. destiny came along um so when you you told me um your idea for this episode and just like how how long they have been playing with uh lore um yeah it really surprised me hmm. well i think that there there's they were born out of that uh late 80s early 90s um PC, primarily PC gaming culture that was also steeped in, you know, certain popular sci-fi and fantasy tropes. And, uh, you know, everything came packaged together back then in a lot of gaming. I mean, you can look at a lot of games in their series and in their, well, in the various, like, franchises they've created and see what were very popular themes and, well, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, but uh, we can't really get there without talking about their creation as a company, which uh, happened in 1991 when they were just, uh, well, when Bungie was basically just Alex Seropian, who's uh, one of their founders. Mm -hmm. And the first uh, Bungie game uh, was uh, bedroom coded, basically, sold in um, plastic Ziploc bags, kind of like... Oh, those were the days. Uh, yeah, except this was like in 1991, you know, that where that was still going on, surprisingly. Well, I, I remember when I went to um, MidwestCon in 1994, mm. that was still going on. Yeah, I guess I've never been exposed to, to sort of like gaming on like a convention level in that way. Yeah. So I've, I've only ever seen like boxed stuff. I read about the, um, the days of uh, Ziploc bags back with stuff like um ultima one mm. or um a calabeth as it was called back then so i knew about it but i kind of figured that it you know probably you know faded out of uh, popularity by the 90s but then again this was 1991 so um so what was this game so this game establishing the uh, entrenched and complicated relationship with storytelling that uh, bungee games have been known for was uh operation Desert Storm. Oh boy. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. 1991. Now, I can only think. I can only speculate because very little about. I mean, there are playthroughs of this game that you can look up. There's very little documented 
about the game. They don't. I mean, Bungie don't seem to talk about it a lot for some reason. I wonder why. Because to be honest, um, if you look at the game, it's it's a crude and basic tank shooter. Uh-huh. I mean, there are games that capitalize on on like you know historic conflict or in this case a very current conflict oh yeah it's yeah prime prime bush in uh in the mid-east uh, yeah. era yeah absolutely yeah. and uh they there is nothing about this game which is uh laughingly billed as a realistic war simulator uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. so right. i i think that just like all of these games yeah um I think that this game was kind of... It feels like a cash grab. Um, it seems... Yeah, it seems a little cynical. Yeah, because it is just... It's the crudest possible game that barely represents anything. Uh, being sold with, you know, a, you know, well, what we would now call a clickbaity title. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the supposedly realistic battlegrounds uh, culled from actual geological data are right angular gridded out uh, maps where tanks fight each other where you're a tank is fighting other a- tanks is this an action game or a strategy game i'm looking uh, oh it's right it, it, it's an action game it's a uh-huh. tank battle action game that uh is not a million miles away from the atari 2600 game combat just on bigger maps I'm looking at it. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, again, the the co- the connection. Oh, yeah. Get Saddam's missiles. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The connection to uh, the actual events of the Gulf War is really incredibly vague. Uh-huh. Um, ex- there, well, it's it's in a desert. Yep. Well, I guess you could call that a desert. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's. I mean, if you look up a, a screenshot of this, it's like there's barely any graphical detail. The most detailed part of the game is the final boss. Because, of course, you know, any realistic uh, military conflict is an attempt to reach the final boss. Uh-huh. And the final boss of this game uh, is a giant picture of Saddam Hussein's face. Of course it is. Yeah, I mean, that was the big military secret behind... Uh, Iraq war. It's just his big face. It's like <laughs> the face on Mars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you blow up Amazing. his giant face. So it's like um, uh, uh, the end of Bionic Commando? Uh, I guess, but less... But also with less detail. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm trying to find a picture of the giant Saddam it's, face. It's... Uh, I, think, I think it's in some videos that are of playthroughs, but it's not... There, there aren't any images. I wonder if it's the kind of thing that, yeah. that I mean, again, this was um, one of their founders doing this on his own in a bedroom. I do wonder if it's something they prefer to kind of erase Probably from, from so. their history. Because, I mean, regardless of the dubious politics involved, and they're pretty dubious politics. Um, such a weird time. Yeah. Uh, regardless of that, it's just like, you know, it's a bad, <laughs> it's a bad game. <laughs> Um, I told you about my grandfather's hat, didn't I? No, uh, no. Tell me about your grandfather's hat. <laughs> he, he had a he had a base baseball cap. I guess it was more of a trucker's cap uh, with uh, Saddam Hussein's face with a target over it that said "Kick his ass and take his gas." <laughs> I've heard that expression. Yeah, um, I, would, uh, 
I, I would always get that out of the closet and uh, put it on my grandfather's head whenever mm. I was over there. <laughs> Eventually, when he passed, my grandmother threw it away. Uh, uh, but it was a it was a very strange time. I guess every time every time in America is a strange time. Mm. But um, I don't know if it was um, me observing the world as a child, but um, it seemed like that kind of. Um, nationalism and racism was uh pretty pretty widely accepted oh yeah there there wasn't a whole lot of pushback against uh operation desert storm i I don't think there was i mean i think it really was it was uh, you know i mean like i'm not i'm not a political theorist you know i'm not gonna like ruminate on the culture of this like too deeply because i'm sure there's a lot to take into account but we had just come out of the cold war in a sense and uh it's great to have um, some other, Very you know, enemy. yeah, bad guy to just demonize in a in a pretty cartoon fashion. I mean, you know, all all of my knowledge of politics, as I imagine a lot of, you know, as a child, and that, but I imagine a lot of adults was as well, was taken from like popular media. Yeah. So you know, Saddam was a punchline in just about every like mainstream comedy around that period. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, when you put it in that context, it's hard not to think of people looking at this and going like oh hey it's a cultural like phenomenon i mean well <laughs> war always is mm-hmm. um let's uh let's make something of it whether it's a hat or a bad video game mm-hmm. so so yeah that's uh and that's where bungie started <laughs> though so like your grandfather's hat yeah, <laughs> yeah. um so they they moved on from that obviously yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um uh jason jones joined the company and uh they they put out their first game in 1994 that was uh boxed production was it 1994 uh i'm just going to darkness pathways into teaching <laughs> is what uh, google tried to autocomplete this as so now we know yeah i'm pretty sure it's 1990 1993, Pathways into Darkness. Right, so 1993, uh, two years later, Bungie puts out Pathways into Darkness. Mm. And And they were still exclusively Macintosh in those days. uh, They were, yeah. Mm. I mean, um, when when I come to talk about Marathon uh, and even Myth, that's kind of a defining part, I think, of... Yeah of the creation and, like, communities you had around these games. Even though, like most of them came to a PC eventually. Mm-hmm. The uh, thing with Pathways into Darkness was it it felt like a hybrid between a first-person shooter and a point-and-click adventure game. And it had... If you imagine playing, playing Wolfenstein using the interface of something like Shadowgate. Okay. Yeah, which was very clunky. I mean, like, the the kind of... The the 3D engine wasn't up to much, so it looked it looked quite flat even compared to something like Wolfenstein. Um, it's really weird. I mean, like it's got these very Macintosh windows of like drop down menus of what arms you're holding. Yep. Um, we've got the 3D. Uh, we've got the 3D maze with a monster in it, and then we've got like text messages of telling you what you're seeing, like like a like a piece of interactive fiction mm-hmm. yeah weird yeah they, they i mean they obviously looked at the the format of of i mean a lot of macintosh games did have a very sort of 
that were very based around their whole GUI. Yeah. The, the Windows style interface that's like ubiquitous now was kind of coming into, you know, it was coming into form on the Macintosh in a very public way. And uh, a lot of the games just incorporated that. Mm. Uh, and it was like, you know, part of the aesthetic or, or lack of, you could say, uh, that is in this game that makes it feel in some ways like an adventure game. Uh, it also makes the action part of the game very clunky. It is very hard to control. Um, Did you play this at uh, the time? Uh, not at the time, no. Uh, I played it since, uh, not again recently, because frankly I have no desire to go back to it. Because mm. it's kind of, like I say, it's a pain. It's It becomes more about resource management yeah. uh, than it does about action, even though you still have to be able to, to manage enemies and and take out you know crowds of bad guys the interesting part of it and where we're bringing it into the whole bungee narrative idea is that this is where the seeds of the sort of grand bungee narrative the first archetypes that they carry on using throughout all of their their fiction are sown so it's kind of a cosmic horror story or i mean it is a cosmic horror story in a very literal sense mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. There is a um, a mysterious pyramid found in a jungle that is not of any um, terrestrial historical origin. Oh my! And it turns out that um, at the bottom of this pyramid, uh, there is a sleeping entity, um, a kind of elder god, if you will. That if it awakes, will um, bring chaos and destruction into well the galaxy. But uh, it's asleep at the bottom of this uh, pyramid and is about to wake up. Okay. And you know about this because um, a hologram from an alien race appeared in front of George Clinton. Sorry, not George Clinton. George Clinton. <laughs> that would be... I mean, that's a regular occurrence. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, Parliament. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. <laughs> yeah, so an alien appeared... I, well, I, I was going to say Bill Clinton is a joke, because that's almost as ridiculous as George Clinton. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. so an alien appears in front of uh, Bill Clinton. Well, yeah, this is how, how the story recounts it. An alien emissary um, of a race, the Jaro, or Jajaro, however you want to pronounce it. It's got two Js. Um, and it basically says there's this sleeping god at the bottom of this pyramid. It's going to wake up. You have to find a way to to stun it until we can come and contain it. Sort it out, Bill. Hmm? Sort it out, Bill. <laughs> yeah, basically. So him and his chiefs of staff send in like a SEAL team, uh-huh. of okay. which you are a member. And it turns into this maze game with puzzles and... Um, and zombies and mummies and things. Well, there's where the, um, and weird alien entities, because it turns out that different people in different periods of history have been exploring this uh, this pyramid, which is an excuse to have like you know a variety of enemies that you know are supposedly fun to shoot at. Eventually, you fight Nazis, you know, because who doesn't like fighting Nazis? Oh boy. There's a lot going on here. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, kind of high concept. So you find early on a yellow crystal that enables you to to listen to the thoughts of the dead. Okay, that's and, fun. And uh, it's a pretty grim concept when you, when you realize how it works because it basically, well, it basically shows you that when a sentient being dies and their consciousness remains 
tied in a faint sense to their physical remains like forever and um it's like corpse party uh yeah still retaining a sense of awareness mm -hmm. and um there's a, a really defining moment of that where you find uh the body of a nazi who froze to death and uh he's just spent so long in the memory and sensation of having frozen to death that the only thing he can recall or recount is that it's cold and uh it's it's pretty standard like kind of cosmic horror you know sanity breaking fare but yeah it it's a cool interesting setup to include these sorts of ideas in your in your game lore yeah there's a lot yeah there there is a lot more going on here than i would have expected from mm -hmm. a you know uh delve into the spooky pyramid and shoot stuff oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and i think that is i mean th right here is where they sort of establish their hey we're going to do video game stuff but try and uh you know try and attach a narrative weight to the video to, to what will always be standard video game stuff of, yeah. of shooting nazis or killing a zombie or like you know delving into a ruin but but they want to flesh it out in a way that that you'll find engaging should you choose to look because I, I i think that even today like you know good or bad bungie do have a certain approach to making their story story optional uh -huh. to making it kind of like a side thing but i mean you know which we'll, we'll get to with, with destiny for sure mm. but um it was it was definitely part of their approach back then as well um although if you play the game in, in if you play if you were playing a Macintosh adventure game in 1991 the whole experience was so arcane that it was kind of uh, taken as a given that you'd be you know you'd be deconstructing this you'd be taking it apart you wouldn't be able to solve the puzzles if you didn't have that analytical bent right. that made you want to go how is this working exactly i mean um, if you think about the kind of uh, riddles and uh, like you know ghastly teleportation mazes you'd find in like 1980s point and click uh, adventure games or or RPGs. I mean, the first thing that that this the concept of this game reminds me of is Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. Oh yeah, did, did you play that? Um, I played it. Yeah, I did play it briefly. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating game. Um, I. When I was growing up, I liked it more than Maniac Mansion because it's much bigger in scope. Hmm. Uh, but Yeah, you could travel across the world, right? You would travel across the world. And um, frequently, you would have to like travel to um, jungles and rainforests mm -hmm. and like go through those as a maze. And then that takes you to a uh, like an Aztec or, or another... Um, uh, another culture's uh, mystic pyramid mm -hmm. where you have to go in there and solve traps mm -hmm. and um, thinking about that I feel like I'm about to break out in hives because <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, ew, that's a lot hmm. I, I, now that I think about it I had that game because it came with a fake newspaper didn't it? Yes it did Yeah that was one of my favorite things about it because it was a nice fun piece of world building where you could see it was like they were alien invaders. That's right. Yeah, and they loved Elvis. And yeah, they wore nose glasses. They, mm -hmm. they wore the Groucho glasses. And there, there were hints of their presence in the newspaper, if I'm not wrong. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a fun thing to uncover. That's that's why they're after Zach because he's the journalist and mm. he's, he he's like writing for like a, a sleazy like tabloid that specializes in the supernatural. Mm -hmm. But he's um, he's not wrong that uh, the aliens are there. Yeah. And, yeah you uh you could 
that was a rare LucasArts game where uh, you could die in myriad ways. Hmm, I think it was only after Maniac Mansion that they kind of did away with the, the like, death. I think so, yeah. Death thing, yeah. Yeah. Hmm, but, uh, I mean, that that's just another example, though, of a game of that era, which kind of required in-depth investigation to to you know well to unpack the essentials of what just how you're going to progress through the game much less you know puzzle out the plot yeah i mean in a way you think of something like like dark souls as a contemporary game where it hands you information regarding the world in a in a way that is well you know again requires your own like commitment to investigation mm-hmm. but uh so pathways into darkness uh, i mean its ending is is in terms of i mean narratively you you See the giant hitler face <laughs> you stun the sleeping the sleeping uh, god uh-huh. uh which has a name there's a name for the species of of creature it is which is which has got way too many apostrophes and way too few vowels yeah i don't like that yeah but uh uh you stun the creature and then 2 years later in 1996 uh, the Jaro show up and imprison it in the sun. Okay. Um, yeah. So that happens. You stun it with a nuke, of course. Uh-huh. Um, like, you know, subtle but effective. So it's in the next year, in 1994, that uh, Marathon is released. Okay, yeah. And Marathon... I mean, it's a game that could uh, have an entire podcast devoted to it. And uh, it certainly had reams and reams of text. Uh, well written within the game itself and about further well further reams of text written about those reams of text it is the quintessential uh, macintosh shooter of the 1990s mm. uh this was a time when we'd had doom on the pc and wolfenstein as these 3d action-based shooters and marathon came a bit after them it's it's worth examining the context where Mac gamers, I mean, there were definitely people who were devoted to Macintosh gaming, but it was a very underserved community. At the time, there was kind of a, you know, sort of an unspoken policy that uh, Apple were not super keen on supporting games on their platform. Yeah. Um, there was also, there was, in my memory, it was kind of rare that you would get uh, cross-platform computer games. Mm-hmm. They were very Mac and and Windows uh, games always struck me as a lot of the time mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was an interesting, like, kind of like possible what you might call a cultural divide, where a lot of people who bought uh, Macs were doing so because at the time a lot of the software for things like desktop publishing and uh, design were mainly well the the main software platforms were on macintosh yeah. and were more widely used on macintosh so if you were going to be familiar with those in your workplace and in your job yeah. or even if you like aspirationally saw yourself as a graphic designer or someone working in publishing you'd want to buy a mac i still feel they've got the edge on a lot of the creative software um i that 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 could be the case i mean i've never i've never actually owned one so so but it you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I still know people who prefer to work in those fields often prefer to use Macs. So mm-hmm. that that probably is the situation. But at the time, it really felt like a divide. It was almost that you couldn't you couldn't professionally pursue those fields effectively without getting a Mac. Mm-hmm. So by that very nature, you're creating this sort of you're creating this sort of sense that oh, a certain person 
uses a Macintosh. You know, even though that's, you know, it's a big presumption, it created this kind of like cultural divide. And people who play video games, like, you know, well, they they tend to like, to, you know, they, they tended to, and a lot of them sure do, like to put things into different uh, categories, you know, or claim they're oppressed for being gamers or something. Which they are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they need the Declaration of Independence, obviously. Um, so Macintosh uh, gaming and PC gaming were sometimes seen as like you know these different opposing fields and yeah. it almost became the whole thing as you know you talk about competitive console platforms talking about you know the halo killer or or the the you know whatever major franchise title killer and there was definitely a sense of competition between mac and pc gamers mm. where the mac gamers felt like the ones who were vocal again i'm not speaking for anyone who who gamed on the macintosh but there was like a vocal component of their community that would would assume that their games were more intellectual um that pc games were just more shallow in comparison and then all computer gamers felt that way towards console gamers yeah these days. so it's it's always somebody punching down at somebody else or you know hypothetically um seeing someone else as beneath them in some way um, which is a sad state of affairs, unfortunately. And the the rivalry in this case was between Doom and the PC's first-person shooters and Marathon on the Macintosh. And because Marathon was really the only major first-person shooter on the Macintosh, it became this sort of monolith that people would would flock to and go, oh, you know, Marathon, there's so much to it. And... I mean, there was, really. If you compared it to to Doom, but it was a different kind of game, so it's not really a fair comparison. Also, it came out years after Doom, so there's that. Graphically, there are a lot of similarities. The, the, the way that the engine works looks very similar. There was actually a bit more technical advancement to the Marathon engine because uh, there was true Z-axis aiming where things could exist at different heights. Ooh. That's new. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it looked like they did in Doom, whereas that was really only a visual trick. Yeah. In Marathon, you could actually adjust your aiming, shoot things at different heights, and it would make a difference. There were limitations as to where you could place parts of your level architecture and geometry. So you couldn't have like a door on top of another door, for instance. Mm -hmm. But if you jiggled things around, you could have two rooms on top of each other, which again was impossible in Doom. So it enabled these more open more more sort of i'd almost say lived in feeling maps because there was more of a sense of structure and architecture to marathon maps and they they tended to be more sprawling and doubling back on themselves whereas to me at least a doom map always felt like it's a maze it's like you know arenas and a puzzle to be solved yeah um and whenever a doom map evoked a sense of place it was always like it always felt like we've painted on textures onto this map to make it appear like oh okay this is a you know this is a carnival ride with the feel of a city block or something mm. you'd see that in wads if you played a, a a doom wad of a famous movie or or something you could very much tell oh look here's a, a texture pasted over something whereas marathon was was trying and I mean, often failing in, in ways because everything still had that chunkiness to it to recreate, okay, this is part of a space colony or, you know, a chamber on board a spaceship. There were lots of chambers on board spaceships, which are, yeah, yeah, you know, which are like fine for recreating an angular uh, graphics en engine. But 
where even more depth and uh, where Marathon is most fondly remembered is through its storytelling. Um, and the storytelling was done via terminals. These these terminals were were the text logs that you'd find in other games. Mm -hmm. And you'd need to access terminals in order to, to further, well, to just make your way through the levels. You get passcodes through them, you get a mission objective through them, and you can engage with these in a the most surface way. And sometimes they were full of flavor text. The conceit of Marathon that you're on board various um, spacecraft with competing AIs fighting one another or with uh, complex varying motives was quite conveniently put through the text logs on, mm. on these terminals because you get like a weird bunch of text. Sometimes it looks like a, a corrupted data file, you know, the old mashing lots of text together. And some of these some of these uh, data files were hard to read, were full of like nonsense ASCII characters, but it created the sense of a world you could puzzle out. And again, the sort of not not strictly cosmic horror, although the the plot of Pathways into Darkness does link directly into Marathon, where the 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 alien race uh, that um, imprisons the the sleeping god are one of the major races in the story, in the plot of the Marathon games. Are they uh, are they antagonists here, or they're like a they're like that'd be an interesting twist. Um, they're like an elder, they're like a sort of an elder precursor sure. type okay. race, which right. you know again is a, a, a theme that runs through um, Bungie's work a lot. Mm -hmm. um, how things end in the Marathon series is uh, hard to describe. Okay, uh, but uh, there was a sequel, wasn't there? Uh, there were two sequels, in oh. fact. Yeah, uh, but. So they use these these text logs, and they and it's a lot of it's a lot of again using weird textual quirks to convey you know AIs communicating things to each other like strangely decoded transmissions from alien races, um, you know weird ship systems logs which give you this the feeling of you're just uh, you, you're not as informed as anyone you know as as you could be so you're you're trying to puzzle out what this world is. You start out on board the spacecraft, getting getting various instructions from uh, different competing AIs, different alien forces. You don't really know who's who or what's what, but you can just play the game as a shooter. Mm -hmm. You get given a, given a mission objective, go to a location, push a button, shoot something. There you go. No need to to engage with the plot. And the further you, well, the more you play the game, the more you can just look at these terminals as, oh, it's a crazy computer babbling at me. <laughs> um, who needs to, to, to read all of this stuff? And, you know, like you'd be, I mean, it'd be a fair assumption to just approach most video games plot in that fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think, <clears throat> well, it was definitely uh, Bungie's intention to make the plot optional in this way. They were like, here's a fun game. You get to shoot stuff. Uh, if you want to engage in our story, you can. And uh, they had added more of these terminals in a hidden fashion. The story becomes quite elaborate and possibly really confusing uh, the more you engage with it. But there remains a certain substance to it. Uh, a lot of the ideas they they took here and, well, built upon in Halo, were taken from 70s and 80s sci-fi. You see them expanded even more in Halo, but they start with the idea of um, AIs and uh, what they call rampancy, uh -huh. uh, which 
which was a concept that they took from the Larry Niven uh, Known Space series of stories and books. Okay, I'm unfamiliar with, uh, with Niven. Yeah, the, the rampancy concept is basically you have, you have AIs that are capable of operating uh, on a human level, level and beyond, but the longer they're conscious, the more their, the sort of synthetic nature of their intellect eventually overwhelms them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so your super, your your super smart computers yeah. will eventually, like, it will start off seeming relatable and human in some ways, but eventually become so beyond human that they're effectively insane and probably a threat to you. Mm. And the story within Marathon follows some of these rampant AIs and tries to understand their motives which seem again mad and uh possibly antagonistic to humans or indeed in some cases all life in in the universe mm -hmm. but it's an interesting complex look at that and um they do a lot of um well they do a lot of interesting things with the protagonist as well because they avoid directly describing the protagonist in a way that's convenient for any first-person shooter. I mean, you have your Gordon Freeman silent protagonist never yeah. speaking. But in the case of Marathon, you're barely described. It's it's made clear that you're a security officer on this uh -huh. on this um, ship. Okay, so you do have a presence, but it's a very slight, yeah. slight touch. Yeah, you're referred to. Um, you're referred to in in some of these like communiques you get from from AIs and aliens, yeah. but you're not quite sure i mean it's for instance it's never really clear if you're completely human you know about the presence of cyborgs and enhanced beings uh you know among the crew members of this ship apparently they're living covertly so maybe you're one of them or maybe you're something more and okay. the the possibility of that is kind of hinted at there's references as well to um to different like historical and mythical hero figures mm -hmm. uh and this is another well you know another sign of bungie's love of like popular iconic myth which they they quite openly fit into anything along with an attempt to create their own versions of these iconic myths yeah um they they refer to the uh, combat cyborgs as the mjolnir four combat cyborgs i mean mjolnir thor's hammer etc it's also something they end up using a form of in halo the idea of a small weaponized elite um you know similar to like the the legend built up around the Sparth spartan soldiers mm -hmm. is some again something they they like to build on but in in marathon as well as later on in halo which we'll get to they they do actually call some of the things around the myth of a, a super being into question and it's kind of interesting to compare marathon to a later game like bioshock because this is a game where at the very end of the series they they question your agency as a character they go oh well you've done all these things are you a hero or are you just merely a tool of of these powers it, it pretty much directly confronts you with the idea that you're you know you're just you know you you seem important, but in fact, you possibly have no identity, okay. and and uh, that is something that that That's gets fun. addressed. Yeah, they, it's very muddled and elaborate and open to interpretation. Once you get to the end of the, um, when you get to the end of um, Marathon Infinity, 
uh, which is the third marathon game, because that game is uh, was an attempt to incorporate a level editor into the game, and arguably the game's fiction accounts for the fact that a level editor is included in the game. Okay, um, that sounds a little far. <laughs> um, because the entire the entire story of Marathon Infinity is a series of um, alternate timelines, traveling between alternate timelines, okay. and various... I, I mean, part of it is an excuse for them to go, hey, here are all of these disparate, weird levels that people have, uh, have made that we want to incorporate into our plot. But then they... they Right, this bizarre. So it's like the third game, kind of like what is, or like the levels, kind of. Is it like a crowdsourced map pack? Um, um, I don't know if the levels were all crowdsourced, but um, it it's. I think it's almost like a best of. Hey, these are the greatest levels we could come up with. Okay, yeah. So they may well have uh, been taken from like sources outside of Bungie in some cases, or inspired by, or like collaborated with. I don't actually know that much about the origin of of the game levels. Yeah. But narratively, the you know the conceit is, hey, you're doing you're doing all of these things with a goal to to affect the outcome of. <sighs> like the quantum moment or something really really abstract in the yeah, ending you know. know if i buy it yeah it's <laughs> um the only way the narrative works there is that it's a fascinating use of themes in the writing i wouldn't say it's like you know coherent as a overarching plot in any way it's it's fun seeing the themes played with and you know seeing them play themselves out in some mm -hmm. cases um interestingly the very last word of uh the last bit of text of marathon uh infinity is destiny Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sowing the seeds. <laughs> yes, indeed. That, uh, okay. like, you know, well over a decade later, they would eventually come back to. Mm. But, um, yeah, that that's uh, that's Marathon. I mean, there is so much more to that story and uh, the way it's, you know, the characters, the different races in it. But they're presented in a more palatable way in Halo, but also in kind of a less, less complex, less characterized way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are interested in the story of uh, Marathon, it's all there on Bungie's we website. Every terminal and um, lots okay. of lots that's, of yeah. That's cool that they did that. Yeah, lots of fact files are actually uh, consolidated on there, and um, there's like thousands and thousands of pages that uh, you can read about it. That's and, a lot. Yeah, that's a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, but uh, if if that was the only game you were playing or the main game you were playing throughout the 90s it, which it was in a lot of uh, in the case of a lot of people i hear it spoken it, about uh in in re revered tones hmm. from people who were there at the time so yeah. i mean you you laying it out this pardon me you laying it out this way it makes a lot of sense now. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you know if you were playing on pc <clears throat> like <clears throat> excuse me like i was you you played a multitude of games and uh, you know you'd have doom you'd have system shock uh, you'd have all of these different sort of like worlds that you'd sample piecemeal. Yep. But in the case of some people playing on on uh, the Macintosh, their only big game would be Marathon. And mm. I, in a way, it's it's interesting and and you know possibly a positive thing that it was a game that would reward that kind of obsession. Mm. In a way, I mean, like, I hate to constantly compare things to Dark Souls, like everyone does, but it <laughs> it is you know a game that rewards a kind of you know, weird archaeological examination almost. Hmm. So, 
we have Marathon, which uh, remains as it is, and they they do they do hint at it and uh, like to like to make callbacks to Marathon for the rest of their their uh, narrative history. But immediately after it, we got um, the Myth series of games. I'm not really going to talk about the Myth series of games, even though I played uh, Myth One. Mm. Um, well, a fair bit. I didn't complete it because uh, it was a game that was known for being really really hard. Okay. I I installed a, a first-person shooters as well. Uh, no, Myth was a uh, Myth was a uh, um, RTS. Oh, okay, it was a real-time strategy. Oh, game. of course it was. Yeah, I have heard of it. I didn't realize it was Bungie though. Uh, yeah, that's right. It was a. Uh, it was. I guess if you want to look at how the story was interesting, it had animated cutscenes throughout mm-hmm. that were done in a sort of '80s fantasy animation style, a little bit. Very cheesy box art here. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's like what's going on there? Is he fighting a monkey? <laughs> oh god, yeah, that's a ghoul. It's the a ghoul. ghoul. Yeah, the ghouls in myth have a weird, yeah. like, kind of they're like elongated monkeys. Yeah. They're like all stretched out with their jaws pulled forward out of their lips. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of very communist-looking sickle. <laughs> I'm team ghoul. I'm team monkey ghoul. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean. I, I mean, I played a, quite a lot of, of the first Myth, and a bit of Myth 2. Myth 2, more known for, uh, for, uh, than anything else for the fact that if you uninstalled the game on its first release, it uh, deleted the contents of the root directory of your hard drive. Hey, perfect. <laughs> so, yeah. You got so, it forever. Um, um, I, hear, uh, I hear Deltarune has a... Uh, not, that, not that bad, but uh, Deltarune, if you... If you uh, use the official uninstaller it seems that it like deletes the directory that the games folder is in oh god it could be a big <laughs> a big problem <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's kind of a similar problem yeah so <clears throat> yeah back in the in the in the day when well in the day when there weren't that many people who were online or using patches yeah the whole uh myth un- uninstall problem was a big deal that was myth too mm. um so yeah myth was a 3D real-time strategy game, which was a novelty. The the characters were sprites, but on uh, a 3D, like geologic, well, you know, geographically varied map. And uh, the 80s style fantasy animated cutscenes were interesting. They looked a bit twee at times, though, mm. for the sort of rather grim story they were trying to tell. The rest of the story is like kind of it, it. It's fine. It's it's the story of a fantasy military conflict that's got dwarves and ghouls and and uh, it kind of it looks like it's going for like a more adult version of something like the Horde. Do you remember the Horde? I do. I think right. we talked about the yeah. Horde. Kirk, Eric, Kirk Cameron in that Kirk one. Cameron was Eric Idle involved? Or, hmm. No, maybe not. Maybe. I thought that was live action. Uh, yeah, it was actually. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, that what a dumbass game. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, notable for its FMV for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. The again, the animated sequences kind of they did stand out for Myth, but they they like I said they look a bit twee or even like kind of a little cute for what the story is meant to be. Yeah. Which is, well, I guess it's just how it panned out. The story was like was fine, but it was very typical, um, not very memorable at all. The except there is one particular element of the story which is again not a super unique not a super unique uh, story element where 
it turns out that the legendary hero um, is also destined to become the vessel for the um, their version of the Antichrist or you know whatever big demonic apocalyptic presence will you know rise I following always, that. I always like that. I gotta say, yeah, it's but it's it's a common trope. It's common. Yeah, it's uh, the idea that uh, like at the end of every era will come the leveler that will basically invert the order, whether it is light, you know, which will turn from light to dark and vice versa. Mm. So the hero of, of light becomes the leveler of dark, essentially. Um, it's a it's a cool trope, and the story's told pretty well, mm. and. The the animated cutscenes definitely played played pretty well back in 1997 but like in the in the scope of what a story was trying to do it was pretty it felt pretty unambitious and ambitious next to something like marathon mm. but there are elements of the story that will definitely carry forth into uh, later and uh, much more recent games by bungie um and then after myth we got oni mm-hmm. which uh I remember Oni. Yeah, my excuse for not uh, talking about Oni uh, too much is I don't want to play it again. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> and uh, also, it's made by Bungie West, which uh, doesn't actually involve a great many people responsible for any of the other Bungie works. Okay. Um, Bungie was already working on Halo. And, and... did... Am I remembering wrong, or did Rockstar publish Oni? Uh, they did, yes. Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's peculiar. Yeah... Yeah, Rockstar Publishing only. I mean, I I don't know what it was that led people to expect so much of Oni. Uh, The thing about Myth uh, and Marathon is they were both very successful in the Mac market and were seen as these these really important pillars of Mac gaming, really, which is what led... um, which is what led Microsoft to eventually eventually buy Bungie, Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact. But... Mm. But... Oni, I guess, was uh, them trying to branch out. It's them trying to do Ghost in the Shell. It really was. Ghost in the Shell was a big deal. It was. In 2001. So the idea of a, of a Western developer coming up with a game that tapped into into that aesthetic and yeah. the, the, you know, the popular themes would be great. But Oni is a bad game. Mm. I did not play it. I, mm. was, I was very uh, snobbish and wary of... Uh, of uh western studios doing anime influence stuff at mm. that point in time uh maybe uh maybe, maybe like looking at that all i could see was fear effect oh god yeah and i I've didn't got, really I've, think of that as being I've, I've got some feelings about fear effect oh i bet I, tell you. I didn't really see fear effect as an attempt to do anime. i guess it had like they said that it was they, oh right they outright said that that's what they were doing Hmm. Um, PS One shell shading. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't look like anime to me. It looked like a French cartoon, which is basically what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with um, do you remember the magazine ad? Yeah, a lot's been said about that magazine ad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's. I think Fear Effect's pretty interesting, and there's a lot there. But yeah, the, it's the sensationalist faux lesbianism is really bad yeah really really bad but Mm -hmm. there was some interesting stuff i remember like isn't isn't like the back half of that game set in like the chinese underworld it is yes i think you know i think i reviewed fear fair effect back then really i may have or i or or i looked at did a preview of it perhaps Uh yeah i think yeah i think i did a preview pre-release code or something if anyone can find the old virgin net reviews let me know Mm. um but uh 
Yeah, yeah. The the Chinese underworld part of that game was actually kind of interesting and surprising was, yeah. at, at the time, and and they seem to make a good go of of doing that. I don't know how like I don't know how sensitive it may have been, but um, probably not very. Yeah, I mean, hey, yeah, they weren't sensitive about the. I don't. I mean, the whole like lesbian thing as well was was really more of the marketing than than anything, if yeah. I recall. Mm, there was some stuff in there. Yeah, I um. I never played Fear Effect 2, hmm. um, and like a number of years ago, it was on uh, PSN for like a pound. Wow. So I bought that, mm -hmm. and like, um, the whole opening to that game is like um, an extended, like, sexy saxophone shower scene. <laughs> um, and then, like, hmm. <clears throat> I feel like the tutorial is like running around looking for a towel, and I didn't get past that. Hmm. So I was like, oh boy. Yeah, the the my recollection of uh, Fear Effect is that you know I know what they were going for graphically, but really feeling that it didn't work, and yeah. and uh, you know regardless of whatever their intent, that game is mostly a blocky mess, and felt bad to look at even back then. Mm -hmm. So so any of their like pretensions to to whatever their style was kind of like failed and made the game really hard to engage with. But, uh, I've, I've dragged us far away from Oni now. Oh yeah, so well you know I'm. You played Oni. I am kind of glad. Yes, I played Oni on the PC um, initially, All right. and where I thought maybe the you know I I I kind of fell for the marketing of Oni basically, yeah. and was like because I, I read a lot of preview articles where they talked about what the effort that was going into the design mm -hmm. and what they wanted to do. They they talked about like the different weapons you'd have in the game. Um, which really weren't particularly interesting, but they described them in an interesting fashion. Uh, I remember them saying there was like a, a crossbow that fired bolts of frozen mercury or something, <laughs> which is the most cyberpunk uh, 1999 thing ever. And that really kind of, you know, what does that mean exactly? It's like, you know, it's, it's a, a crude shooter <laughs> on the PC. It's either going to be a hit scan weapon or you might have to lead your aim. It doesn't matter what the bolts of your crossbow are made out of. <laughs> um, but, you know, they got me for a while. Um, and then I saw the game and I played the game. Uh -huh. And I wasn't... I didn't have as big of a problem with with the idea of of um, a Western company going for an anime aesthetic. Although, I, I, mean, I did bristle a bit at seeing some of the, the stuff. Um, going back to, to that... I watched some video of Oni uh, yeah. in preparation for this podcast, and that's one of the parts of it that's aged the least badly. <laughs> I mean, the visuals. yeah, well, not the in-game visuals are really bad, <laughs> but there's like anime-style cutscenes. Oh, are there? Yeah, well, there's an opening, and that opening is actually fine, and like does a good job of evoking a certain period of anime pretty decently, actually. I'd I'd say, but the in-game stuff, like the character portraits in-game, are just. Like they're like a bad Antarctic Press comic book or something. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry I said that. Yeah, we're, we're, it's okay to throw shade at Antarctic Press. Is it okay? I think so. Anyway. Okay. I don't know much about them except I didn't like their art. <laughs> I didn't like their art either. Okay. It was really cringe stuff. Yeah. Really, really cringe. I read a lot of uh, uh, Ninja High School. Oh, so you re you read a lot of it then? Okay. Uh, not a lot of it. Okay. I say a lot when I really I had like three issues. Okay. Um, and that was. Uh, very embarrassing. Hmm. Um, they know they they translated bondage fairies. That's, that's okay. Hmm. 
Yeah. Fun fairies. Any of us read that from news groups? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I remember, yeah, because I had a lot of issues with uh, snobbish ideas about authenticity mm-hmm. and um, manga uh, back in the day. So, like, so I ignored Oni, and then that Ghost in the Shell PS2 came, game came out a couple of years later, and I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, here we are. This is what Oni should have been. Mm-hmm. And um, That's I, the Caviar one? Yeah, it's, it's our friends at Caviar. Yeah. Uh, I played that, and that is a horrible, horrible game. Uh, so, yeah, well, we're not going to talk about that in this episode. I think I've, I've defended that game before. Have you? Yeah, I, I enjoyed that game. Like, I feel like that game is knowingly mediocre, but then well, I feel, caveat. yeah, I feel like that, that's a lot of caviar games on the PS2. And, I have a lot of time for caviar. Yeah, and and it felt bland in a way that was thematically correct, if that makes sense. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't really defend it as a good game, but I did enjoy it. Mm. Uh, getting back to Oni, though, Oni is not a good game, and it controlled terribly mm. uh, on uh, the. Uh, well, this on the PC, their, their first uh, this is their first um, console game, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. So I guess, and then I don't know, doing a PC version of that with those controls. I think yeah. I, I mean, it, it came out simultaneously. Um, although I heard about it more on the PC at first, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it just controlled really badly. I don't think you could always get a copy of it in CEX for a pound. Yep, that that's the thing I remember. Rare. They they were practically furniture in yeah. those days. <clears throat> Oni Smuggler's Run. Uh, any um any uh like CD-ROM game as yeah. well like you know Dinotopia that sort of thing. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh. Looking at at uh, the levels of this game again, it just it lacks. You know the reason why I'm not the other reason I'm not talking about it much is that there's barely any narrative. They they have this thinnest veneer of of the you know anime style and setting. But really, I mean, there's very there's a tiny amount of poorly delivered dialogue. Um, you know, the 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 end cut the, the some of the last level is just like people falling into a fan, um, <laughs> or is that? Oh, I mean, like you know, the, nothing nothing of great dramatic import happens in the story, which is sad for for what's quite a big project. But they were working on Halo at the same time, mm. so. That kind of didn't matter. Um, so only there's not a lot that's worth saying about it. It's a shame it didn't turn out to be anything remotely like what they promised. Mm. Uh, what that leads us to is Halo, which, which is which everybody loves. Uh, yeah, and Halo, I think, possibly the height of Bungie's making story and making story and the mechanics of the game two very separate and distinct pillars mm. they i mean there's a lot that's been written about the mechanics of this game and the gameplay um down to the fact that you know they supposedly hired psychologists to help them uh, tweak the auto aim and uh what? yeah how does that work um apparently the because there is a a small amount of stickiness to the uh way the reticule aims uh-huh. not something that is noticeable but it makes the aiming seem more fluid and it was the most fluid and effective first person uh like shooting control right. okay. on any console at the time and apparently they use a, a lot of tricks that they you know got various people who are supposedly like experts in the field of things like um hand eye coordination interesting okay yeah, to make what seemed like a 
I guess, ergonomic control interface. One that's not necessarily apparent, but quite, quite thought through. So you've got your gameplay, which is, which is something you don't need to think about to engage with, and you have um, your story, which, by and large, is cribbed from, cribbed from whatever sort of military sci-fi was en vogue. It's a game about shooting things. So yeah, this it's, is kind of why I ignored it at the time. Mm, it's a game about shooting things, so it's going to crib from the more military side of sci-fi. Yeah. And again, you think back to things like the Larry Niven known space uh, fiction. You think of uh, stuff like Ringworld, which uh, is, I mean, well... That's what the, the Halo refers to. Yeah, the, the Halo is literally a Ringworld. Um, so it's almost as if they made a game that they could have, you know, they could have called it Ringworld if not for the fact that that already existed. Mm -hmm. And Halo itself, um, in its world building, is full of these elements. I kind of think that the if you look at the history of... Um... So I talked earlier on about how there was a sense of video game and sci-fi communities having this sort of, you know, elitist gatekeeping that keep people keep everyone's interests clumped together and i've talked about it on previous podcasts if you liked uh computer games you probably liked star trek if, if you were in a certain era you probably liked tolkien if you're in a certain era or at least the community you were a part of probably had these yeah. so sort of like general popular interests and i think this fed into the whole again lovecraft is popular in in uh, video games or shall we say cosmic horror uh which is what you got in pathways into the darkness the the occult elements there um all of the different like popular sci-fi so the en vogue military sci-fi encompasses things like niven's known space and it encompasses the great monolith but i don't know if we've truly moved past in terms of the military aesthetic in a lot of sci-fi and that is aliens mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. if you combine larry niven with aliens and uh macross you get halo Okay. Yeah. Well, there's not. I, some things definitely been made of this, but uh, a lot Do of. Do you have any pop music? Uh, no, we don't. No. <laughs> we have uh, we have choral Gregorian chanting no. in place of pop music. You've taken the wrong part of Macross. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Macross is great. So, um, well, the Macross that get, that goes into Halo. It's not. Really, it's it's Macross. Well. <laughs> Arguably, possibly, it's more Robotech than Macross. Yeah, probably. Huh? Yeah, but it's you know the same it's the same kind of thing. And again, that was that would be in the collective consciousness of like you know military sci-fi gaming nerds probably. Master Chief's original design, and uh, this has been pointed out before, is a slightly and only slightly modified version of the uh, infantry armor from uh, Genesis Climber Mospida. Or uh, the second oh, part of Robotech, I, yeah, or third yeah, part yeah. of Robotech. I yeah, I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah, it's, it's like been a long time since I saw Robotech. It's only a slight modification, mm -hmm. which is why in all of the success, all of the successive games, they've changed it a bit each time so that it looks less copyright infringing. <laughs> um, some of the vehicles are even. I think the Warthog, the iconic Warthog design, is taken I from. Remember hearing that? Yeah. yeah, that's also taken from Mospeda. Um, and I mean, if you look at the earliest images of Halo, it's when it's, when it was a real time strategy game on the Macintosh, 
it uh, was probably placeholder art. They probably went, oh, what's a sci-fi thing? And uh, grabbed that because, you know, they had magazines and comics around. Mm. And they modified it to make it into stuff that is now considered to be iconic. It's a weird thing where you see Western gaming take from Japanese Japanese pop culture and not talk about it at all. Like like the Hellgast in, um, in Killzone. Like, they're just like the... Um, uh, God, what do you call them? The Panzer Police from uh, Jinro, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Look at the the early early pictures of the Hellgast in the first Kill Zone, and look at Jinro, and it's kind of the same design. No, I hadn't realized. Yeah. So that... I never really paid attention to uh, to Kill Zone. <laughs> well, you. It's called Kill Zone. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually <laughs> met a couple of guys. Uh, at Adventure X, who worked on Killzone. Oh right, um, and they uh, they're they're doing their own studio and adventure game now. It's, okay, it's a game called Roki, hmm. uh, which is um, based on an, uh, um, Finnish, I want to say Finnish or Scandinavian folklore mm-hmm. um, about like a little girl in a broken home, and they were like, yeah, you know, we made Killzone, but we want to make like this uh, cute, accessible, but kind of scary adventure game. And I was like, oh yeah, you guys are all right. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really pretty certain that I mean I've played all of the Killzone games. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of I have a, like a I've always had a weird interest in them, um, and I'm pretty sure a lot of thought and uh, you know a lot of people with Seems interesting like ideas yeah. put a lot of work into the, that game. It just gets kind of like smoothed out and has all the edges edges sanded off in mm. order to make it into what's a quote big franchise. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad they got to make Horizon Zero Dawn, even though, like, I I do actually love that game, but I have lots of problems with it as well. There are a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But, so, back to Halo. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a pastiche. It's like this... It's sort of... I mean, it's kind of, in a lot of ways, still 90s gaming, doing a magpie-like collection of Mm -hmm. uh, pop culture references. So you've got your your anime style style hardware also taken from from aliens. I mean the bad guys have big bulbous uh like you know gray gray blue and purple uh spaceships with an organic shape that evokes a lot of the stuff from Macross. The the, the armor design and weapon design a lot of it you put it side by side is very very similar to the things you see in Macross and and Robotech like I said. So so none of it is super original. But it's, it's like a sort of it's it's a popular zeitgeist, and it's kind of designed to be frictionless to engage with. If you like sci-fi and you like shooting aliens, these are all going to be versions of things that you like. They, what they did is put a deeper story in there for anyone who wants it. And I say deeper story. I mean that what they do is is characterize the setting, characterize the the different factions in the game. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's again the idea of rampancy comes back. The idea of precursor civilizations comes back. The idea of sorry, you're going to say something? Uh, no, I was scratching. Oh, okay. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I'm listening. Yeah, the the idea of a of a like overarching cosmic threat and the possibility of like you know galaxy wide genocide that all comes back in a much some of it in a much more explicitly uh, spoken and simpler way, but then. The further law is in the Halo games. <clears throat> uh, with the release of Halo 2, they, they started to put novels out. Uh, the Fall of Reach by Eric Nyland is largely regarded as the best... It's the first and largely regarded as the best Halo novel. 
Um, it I'm was sure all... that's a I'm sure that's a high bar. <laughs> oh yeah. Although <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing shade. It's just like I just um, I know that um, uh, Alex Navarro on the Beast Cast regularly brings up uh, reading uh, the novelization of Doom, Knee Deep in the Dead, which is <laughs> yeah. uh, also a book that I had when I was a child, mm. uh, which has a lot of sex in it. Oh god, it's very peculiar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> sorry. Carry on. <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a weird, a weird thing. I mean, I I read uh, the Fall of Reach when it came out, as yeah. a matter of fact, because I was uh, I was weirdly well. I was spending a couple of weeks abroad uh, by myself with nothing to do. I had a laptop that uh, lavish gaming laptop that had Halo Halo on it. Ooh. So I was playing Halo when I. I found a cheap copy of uh, Fall of Reach in a second-hand Singapore bookstore, and I read it. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it was like, you know, that, those are my, my evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a decent piece of sci-fi. Uh, apparently, it was written in two weeks, <laughs> <Okay>. which <laughs> uh, makes me suspect Very the well. use of uh, performance-enhancing substances. But, <laughs> um... I do believe um, um, cyberpunk uh, author uh, John Shirley wrote a couple of uh, Halo books. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Mm. I mean, Greg Bear wrote. A bunch of Halo books. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. But uh, although the Greg Bear books are are set, uh, like they're all about the precursors. So mm-hmm. he basically had kind of like a very broad stroke to just create something. Got to go wild. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, they they added these these sort of background stories to who the characters were, and by the time you get to Halo Halo Three, there are terminals just like there were there were in Marathon hidden throughout the game that contain bits of of text and fragments of story giving different accounts of characters throughout the universe. But these uh, terminals are so well hidden that I played through Halo 3 twice without finding one of them. Hmm. I mean, I... Wow, okay. Yeah, I wasn't searching... hidden, it sounds like. Uh, Yeah, I wasn't searching for hidden stuff, though. So I'm talking about these... these, uh, the three Halo games, which are the three Bungie Halo games... Uh, the games of, are, of course, uh, an ongoing concern, but uh, the people who, who created the lore are no longer attached to, no. the, uh, to the company. And from, from what I've heard, um, it seems like the, the developers and the storytellers who have inherited Halo don't seem to know what to do with it and are just kind of like they, they could have done anything and they're just kind of doing a retread. Hmm. That's that's the the criticism that I've heard about Halo Four and Five. Yeah, it does. It does feel like, hey, we're running over these different ideas. I mean, Halo Five. I I still enjoy the Halo games and look forward to new ones in the series. Probably more because of the gameplay and the 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 atmosphere I've become familiar with. Halo Five is just like they're they're kind of fully exploring an idea that started in the earlier games, but I don't. It doesn't feel that sad. Oh, God. But it doesn't feel that satisfying. So, um, yeah, I, I think they're they're at a loss to sort of take things in a new direction, which is kind of what the the series really needs. Mm. Um, but the 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 core trilogy of games, Halo Three, uh, they it it carries on with with the same sort of. It's not. It's not quite apparent. But the, if you look at the the, the further law that Bungie add to the game, which, as I say, your the onus on you is to to look it up, which is a weird thing because you normally think, oh well, video game law, like as we say, is it's an embarrassing thing at times. It's like, do you want to to be seen to be reading a video game novelization or a video game like like offshoot book? 
I kind of felt bad about doing it. I, and, I probably would have felt bad yeah. at the time. Um, I mean, I was doing it on a different on the different side of the uh, the world, so <laughs> so I was like, no one's going to see me read this Halo book. <laughs> um, I'm in a different hemisphere. Um, and then I I read a follow up novel after that because I wanted to to get more of the story, and I was uh, dreadfully embarrassed when someone saw me. Yeah. So so there is that that element of it. When, when I accidentally bought. Um, a light novel based on Slayers. I was, and I opened that. I was more embarrassed uh, reading um, a, uh, a v- v- like very like low reading skills level novel with anime pictures in it than I would have mm. been reading a manga. <laughs> God, yeah. So that's that's kind of how. <laughs> but yeah, this is like you know that that sense of 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 weird shame. I mean, there's it's there's. I think it's an outdated experience now, but there used to be a sense of shame attached to to just being involved in video games. Yeah, it's something that like even I find it a little hard to shake sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, same here. Yeah, and you know we do we, we do a regular podcast just mm-hmm. about this about this hobby, and yeah, I mean the stigma is definitely diminished from what it was um, twenty or even ten years ago, mm-hmm. but it's still. You know, I guess going through life like that, it's hard to... Mm. And, you know, the reputation of, like, the loudest and worst people yeah. involved in the medium. Yeah, I think that the, there is a, a real issue of the fact that that people feel a sense, feel like shame is enforced onto, onto them for liking something. And then they double down on that and it turns to, like, a sort of aggressive kind of defensiveness around yeah. it. Which is where you get reactionary movements within within video game communities unfortunately yeah big time yeah so but yeah halo <laughs> um halo novelizations i've you know i've read a few of them and and it was yeah the the fall of reach was probably a good a good point in the law because it established a lot of things they gave uh, a a pretty decent writer some free reign to come up with background and build on the themes that were were present in in their um in their previous work things like marathon where they they question who is your who is this this superhero of a character that you have as your protagonist um where does he come from and it's really funny where when people look at the master chief the iconic sort of you know faceless hero of the of the halo games as being some kind of okay yeah here's this gung ho um, you know, almost almost jingoistic kind of hero, um, and uh, there's a pretty amusing faux pas from the Halo um, social media team when they used the Master Chief thing on Veterans Day, I think. Okay. Recently, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was that? Um, uh, you know what? I will. It's stupid. Yeah. Um, I think um, Liberty Prime on the Fourth of July. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the the worst. Yeah, the worst games-related social media faux pas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think the um, the uh, Battlefield one early enlisters bonus was pretty bad. <laughs> oh fuck! Yeah. Yeah. So um, well, that was last year though. Yeah. Or oh, I mean, yeah, ago. yeah. Well, yeah. It, like these these things happen happen uh, so quickly in in such rapid succession. Uh-huh. I forget about them. Yeah. So um, but it, it's. You know, it so speaks to the the idea that people look at a character like Master Chief and they go, "Oh yeah, you know, big time, 
big time nationalistic hero uh whereas the fiction of um of halo makes him out to be he's a kidnapped child soldier who's been um unlawfully genetically experimented on uh by a fascist government to be used as a tool of oppression oh cool <laughs> yeah so uh that's who all the spartans are so is that is that in the game as well uh, uh or is it just in the in the supplementary novels it's well it was only in the supplementary novels but halo reach which was made by uh bungie mm -hmm. um does actually have interviews with the scientists who created him and um it's painted as a well you know we made this super being by chance through an immoral act and um i'm down yeah that. that's cool yeah that that is in the background of the story i mean just like the way marathon crest questions your agency and motives as a protagonist mm -hmm. it's that exists in the fiction of halo everything about this character is you know what he is superficially is not what he is as a person i mean the the um it's also really funny uh, how there's there's the the whole there was a really bad twitter meme about where people are trying to spread the idea that the fiction says that the suit jacks him off <laughs> I, I was actually going to you know you've cut me off yeah because this okay. was something i was going to bring up before the end of this episode <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah whereas the act my one contribution to halo discussion <laughs> oh. and you, you've stepped on my tail <laughs> <laughs> i apologize you've, you've stepped on my dick <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um but yeah that, that's because the halo law scene is this weird arcane thing that the many fans don't even engage with mm -hmm. the idea that that was suggested and people weren't even sure if it was true <laughs> um, kind of like points towards um yeah how arcane this whole thing seems uh the suit does not jack him off uh, but more well, interesting that's, that's your read uh, well <laughs> what's a more more um well, somebody on weird twitter like photoshopped one of the books oh yeah to, uh, yeah to, to describe the suit jacking him off yeah but again in terms of if you want to question this character's uh masculinity it's pretty much made clear in the fiction that uh, although the suit may not jack him off he is effectively chemically castrated okay yeah i think <laughs> i did hear that yeah and that's like they don't they don't strictly mention it but they say that all of the original spartans uh you know to focus them for combat they they're also i mean the the combination of drugs they they have um restrict any sense of libido that they might feel so um Again, it's almost like there's almost an element of like Ernst Rome and the pink swastika there. Hmm. Um, whereas like, uh, well, Rome was all about libido, uh, but um, he, you know, being a big gay Nazi uh, was um, against um, against his soldiers um, fraternizing with the ladies mm -hmm. uh, and uh, getting married and having families. And it was like, uh, just like a bunch of soldiers fucking each other. That's... Uh, that's the manliest and most powerful thing you can have. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the Spartan way. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely is the Spartan way. Yeah, absolutely. And historically. And, yeah. uh, you know, Mustchief is a Spartan. Although, you know, they were fucking nobody, apparently. So, um, mm. it's it's the, the fact that the fiction undermines the iconic representation of the character is something I find intriguing and interesting. It adds a, you know, a sense of depth, even if it's like, you know, not always explored, that makes makes these worlds more interesting and fun and lived in in a certain way mm. so so that that was something that i've i've come to enjoy about the about the nice nice, uh, nice use of verb there um, yeah indeed you know something that master chief will never experience <laughs> um, uh, but uh yes yeah, so um god i've lost my my train of thought now um 
<clears throat> but uh, that's something that, uh, again, the later Halo games that after they've been taken over by 343 Studios after Bungie left, um, they sort of fail to engage with. They they make the Spartan super soldiers into... Well, they make it the, they make it into something that anyone can become quite easily with no ill effect. Mm, okay. So the whole original premise of these this like dwindling pool of kidnapped uh children that managed to withstand cruel experiments uh now it's just like oh they'll give you an injection and a suit of armor and there you go mm. it's like oh okay so um that that kind of kills a lot of the the, you know, the narrative weight of what the concept even really means and um <clears throat> yeah that's that's lame yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry I'm just gonna did we move on to Destiny, or was there something? There was, yeah, I, well, there was, no, I wanted to, there was something on Halo I wanted to go, I just... No, I was getting a bit of a Starship Troopers vibe. Yeah, I, I mean, the... Uh, maybe, for, you know, with the subversion, maybe more of, like, the Paul Verhoeven Starship Troopers. Yeah, yeah, well, there, there's, there's, so there's definitely, like, the sci-fi zeitgeist that informs Halo definitely is inclusive of, of stuff like Heinlein, um, especially because if you think about aliens, um, James Cameron was informed by Heinlein uh, for, for aliens. Uh, famously, he's supposed to have meant to have given copies of Starship Troopers to all of the uh, the Marine cast in um, in the filming of Aliens, and uh, it's almost the, the superficial engagement with some of the some concepts that that Heinlein uses remind me of of uh, some of Halo's engagement with. With different sci-fi concepts as well. You know about Heinlein's waterbed story as well, don't you? Uh, refresh my memory. Well, it's interesting because uh, apparently, again, this is all uh, apocryphal, but... Waterbed Rob. <laughs> um, I beg your pardon? Waterbed Rob. Who's that? <laughs> oh, Heinlein. God, yeah, you're right. Um, it's apparently apocryphal that... Uh, because, you know, you could argue that a lot of, like... Heinlein's political engagement with various concepts seems a bit like facile and and like um for one of a better word possibly edgy like you know like he's try aiming for a bit of edginess and uh from what I understand from um authors um who I've spoken to who who knew Heinlein it seems like it was m more a patina of edginess than like genuine nationalism yeah yeah i mean i, I like i i've heard stuff um again apocryphally that apparently he was like trying to be interesting to get laid a lot of the time he, he <laughs> did like the ladies yeah and and the, whoops the funny the funny uh, um contrast i'd make is people talk about about um science fiction authors coming up with prescient ideas in their work and people talk about arthur c clark and and the space shuttle and apparently in Heinlein's case, it was the waterbed. Because, um, yeah, I guess uh, he loved the idea of, uh, you know, getting it on. So, uh, you know, he okay. conceived of the waterbed before it was ever made popular. Wow. In his fiction. Okay. So, um, yeah, lying on a sack of fluid and getting down. So we, we, have, we have him to thank for waterbed, Kev. Uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to play you the waterbed, Kev. I, I, I want to hear this. Um so yeah that's a, a little bit of a tangent there but um halo yeah so it's from halo uh that we come into bungie's much later and more recent property destiny so what you have in the body of the, their fictional work up to now is a love of iconic 
uh, mythical hero moments like the Spartans, like yeah, um, Last Stands. Um, one of the, the most dramatic uh, moments in any of their games actually is the final quote level of um, Halo Reach, uh-huh. which I'm spoiling for anyone who cares. Um, you assist the launching of the ship that will that will. Um, well, that you start the first Halo game on, so thus kind of linking the whole Halo trilogy of games. But uh, you yourself are um, sacrificed in this in this battle, so you help the ship to launch, and then you're stranded alone, the last survivor on the pa- on a planet swarming with um, the Covenant. I like that UFO. And uh, it basically just says, um, it just says, survive as your final mission imperative. And you will fight until you die, and uh, that last level goes on for as long as you can survive, and that then it just ends with you being dead. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool. I like ending. that a lot. Yeah, uh, I've al- I've always liked this thing, this type of thing, ever since Fantasy Star Two, mm-hmm. with its uh, with its ending, the uh, um, unwinnable battle against a um, spaceship full of Earthlings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty great. I mean, uh, I think Half Life. Half Life kind of ends that way if you if you pick um, well yeah if you pick the quote wrong choice I think okay well maybe it's the right choice I can't remember but there is an ending to Half Life Two that puts you although you don't actually get to fight the battle because I remember in Half Life Two seeing that battle and thinking I could take these guys <laughs> you know with my quick save sure yeah but yeah Halo Reach has that great uh, dramatic ending where you just die mm. um, and. So they've got a lot of these moments and these proper nouns um, and a magpie-like tendency to collect bits of, of you know, popular fiction from, from, from dramatic fantasy and sci-fi genres. So with that in mind, this all piles into Destiny because Destiny is a game of, of proper nouns I mean, the title, Destiny, it's like, you know, it, it's at once all-encompassing, sweeping, and also kind of saying nothing. Hey, maybe they should call it Density. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we've got something there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... It has factions in it that are that are broadly... I mean, imagine if you could have elves and robots and wizards all in the same game. Mm-hmm. It's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh I play Shadowrun. Um it's fiction as an excuse. Um it's uh it's kind of the um the the premise that we have going back to Pathway well, going back to Marathon really, where we have our gameplay and uh you assume that people want to do video game things like shoot a bunch of um insect aliens mm-hmm. or like, you know, ride on a jet bike. Um you you know you want to use a sniper rifle but you also want to cast a spell you know and they they find a thematic and narrative excuse to tie all of these things together there are <clears throat> and there are a lot of vagaries that keep this this sort of thing in in a kind of you know weird sort of stasis when where to the initial onlooker what is destiny? I mean, is it like you know? It's a bit of a. I think I was asking you that early in this podcast. Uh, yeah. Uh, run. Hmm. Because it's a science. I mean, like you know, science fiction, science fantasy. I suppose you can compare it to something like Star Wars, which is, which is a sort of fantasy story in a sci-fi milieu. Uh, but that's that's kind of vague and broad. Mm-hmm. 
which is again what what uh, what destiny is so it's it's an excuse for people to to run around and perform these heroic acts that you do in in a fantasy novel or a sci-fi novel pretty much interchangeably they create a list of factions which are which are inspired by and drawn from the previous lore of a lot of uh, a lot of Bungie's earlier work. So you have you've got rampant AIs, but they're very vaguely referred to. There's a war mind, which is apparently part of a network of artificial intelligences that that defended the Earth from um, from external threats. Um, there's the idea of light and dark, but they're both very vaguely alluded to. Mm. So it's not certain what what they mean which again is handy because you know you can look at light as purely a stat on your character sheet which is kind of what it is or you can look at it as a narrative motivation these things can exist totally separately and the you know kind of well let's call it bold move that uh, Bungie made with destiny uh, was to separate the narrative from their their game almost entirely um yeah, yeah. Uh, this was a big, a big, uh, the, the widest uh, or loudest complaint that I heard about Destiny One mm. is that they wrote a lot of narrative for this game, um, and like, Can yeah, they sell it as a separate book. Do they sell it as a separate book now? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it I, seems. Oh, I don't like that. Well, you know, the the. I mean, in contrast, I'd say those stories in um, Lost Odyssey. Uh-huh. They're pretty good stories, a lot of them. I yeah. mean, some of them are, are a little like kind of um, a thousand years of dreams. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, they're a little, they're a little saccharine. Yeah, uh, but they're but they're easily the best writing in that game. Oh yeah, for sure. They're not written by the the person who wrote that game. Yeah, <laughs> um, by an actual author. But the uh, there's a there's a lot of good writing in the lore of of this in the grimoire cards, <laughs> as they are called. But it's very disconnected from the game. And uh, it's a ch- it's a chance for them to write around the themes of the game to flesh out what the characters and factions of the game are motivated by and what they're up to. And it's sort of going, okay, well, you know, you've got your game where you shoot your insect aliens, but why are the insect aliens doing what they do? And it it calls back to like the kind of childish engagement you'd have with a with a two D scrolling shooter as a kid, where you go like kind of like oh, you know. Who's the Bacterion Empire? Um, you know, where does the 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 R nine ship come from? Um, that sort of thing, and and there, there there's you know there's lore that you're substituting in that fits into the weird. I mean, you know, even back then they tried to to come up with reasons for for why like scrolling shooters played in the, you know, what kind of narrative excuses this weird you know, like asymmetrical warfare, uh, and. There's a lot of hard work going into into justifying that that takes place in Destiny, and it's written, it's written in a pretty elegant and interesting way. Um, there's a faction like we talked about the um, the weird mismatch of level mismatched levels in um, Marathon Infinity. There is an entire expansion in uh, Destiny, and in fact, a whole faction really that uh, exists outside of time and create simulations or different timelines. And it's an excuse for you to experience what's pretty much procedural content okay. in one part of the game. It's not super like interesting compared to some of the more scripted stuff, but it's it's visually pretty interesting actually, but it's it's like it doesn't give you 
a strong narrative thread, but it provides like a like cool theming to a part of the game. Mm-hmm. And you know, it gives this again this this sort of like stretch narrative base that you could hang lots of other things on. There, there are really like uh, unique facets of the story that are actually like really interesting in a narrative way. The hive, who are the like you know the big evil insect race that you encounter. Um, that their wizard was the wizard that came from the moon, in case you're wondering. Um, they've got an entire history that's written in a pretty engaging way, with a lot of like with their own lore and mythology. Uh, that's got some really really cool aspects to it. The idea that um, they've uh, they've tried to there, there's a there's a an idea in science fiction to do with with altering altering uh, the laws of physics by being present at the formation of a universe or something mm. um and the hive do something like that to make their own like philosophy and doctrines have a like actual exertion on the laws of physics um i dove into destiny 2 mm. a little bit over the autumn because it, they were just giving it away as part of ps plus mm-hmm. so i was like well you know now's the time i'm gonna try this out with but my friends who have just been have done everything there is to do. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was running. Uh, I was running with my friend Matt, um, and we in, encountered some, uh, I, I guess, like hive ghouls. Oh yeah. Uh, and I was like, okay, what's the so what's the deal with these guys? And he's like, okay, well, look, there was these there were these wish dragons. And I was oh like, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Did you learn about sword logic? I did learn about sword logic. I think sword I logic like, is is the natural progression of of late stage capitalism. I think sword logic is, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess you know if you are uh, if you're one of those guys who's watching QVC and you're ordering swords. <laughs> yeah. I mean, eventually it's got to end somewhere. Hmm. So. Uh, but you know, there, there's the fact that these guys have an ideology and a religion that like is something you can point to and look at is yeah is yeah. is fascinating uh, i mean the vex again who are the weird like simula- robots that simulate everything and live outside of time mm-hmm. even they've got like a, a a strange like kind of amoral sort of approach and existence to why they're there they're very inscrutable in their motives but it's implied that they you know experience things that might be relatable we just don't know why why they do what they do so it's there but um it's weirdly detached in the in the grimoire i mean i can see in a way it's it's kind of you know if you spend days and days playing a game repeatedly you don't want to have to engage with the story while you're doing it it's like you know it it becomes outside activity sometimes justifying a narrative and a mechanical process simultaneously you know like you know, we all skip the cutscenes in, or skip the summons in an RPG eventually. Mm. So why not have the two completely separate? I don't think it's necessarily enjoyable sometimes, but like I think it's a valid approach. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose so. Yeah. It, there's, I guess, there's something for everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, 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 mean, I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. It, yeah, it, it's. I don't know if I can get behind it personally. Yeah, I. I, I I guess the, the the thing is that it, in the way I the way I take take the atmosphere and lore from Destiny is there's something very superficial about it all. I mean, like you know, Destiny, like the most recent expansion for Destiny, makes it into kind of a western. 
I mean, uh, oh really? Yeah. Well, it's a western with like four arm with jet bikes and like you know the fallen are now like the bad guys. Have you played much uh, Forsaken? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's it's. Uh, I mean, people say that about about one of the other expansions, but I think I think it's the best Destiny content there's been, probably. Okay. Um, That's what I hear. Yeah, it's it's uh, got a lot of scripted stuff in like you know a whole new environment, but. They go for a kind of Western feel where you're supposedly hunting down a gang uh, on these like weird series of tethered together asteroids, which is your new kind of environment. And the thing about Destiny is it, it it's actually trying to capitalize on the superficiality of going, hey, it's a Western now. It's like, yeah, I guess you've got guns and like, you know, pistols you use to fight people. Play some slide guitars now and then and maybe I'll believe it. Um the fact that all of the elements from the aesthetics to the narrative to the gameplay kind of like float apart from each other a bit makes it easy for you to go hey i'll spend like you know 10 hours grinding and then i'll think about what that means and if you like enough of how it looks or enough of what it reminds you of which in in my case i do because i've played so much of it then it makes it easy for you to kind of like you know stick these bits together and go yeah this is what i'm taking from it you know, I'm going to read this part of the grimoire and go, oh, we, hey, one of the Vex robots wrote a poem. <laughs> and uh, and that's cool, because I guess I'm reading a poem now about about uh, MMO that I'm playing. Um, and it's like this comfortable level. I'm not saying that anything... I'm not saying that... Well, I, I actually, I was going to say... I'm not saying that Destiny ever talks about anything of import, but it kind of does. I mean, like I was saying about the the Hive, it's like, you know, they have a very grasping, like, kind of uh, self-above-all, like, you know, almost objectivist kind of uh, viewpoint. And, I mean, it, well, it's not particularly challenging to be critical of objectivist viewpoints, but but at least it's there. <laughs> and... um yeah, it makes me it makes me engage with the material, I guess. And and I think that like, you know, when games are made to be repetitious, maybe the way we get our story from them needs to be different or can be different. Yeah, I I I don't know the best way to make it work in a title like Destiny, which mm-hmm. is so um sort of social and run-based and and very grindy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe that is the best way to handle it. But it seems it's a, that it's a way. I don't, I'm not. I'm not arguing that it's like kind of like you know an ideal. It seems that people are a lot more satisfied with Destiny Two than Destiny One. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm. And uh, I'm continuing to enjoy it. And it's if you look at stuff on the horizon from other developers like um, Anthem from Bioware, for instance. I think it's yeah. It's like one of those. Yeah, it really does. I mean. There are other games that broadly have uh, have that kind of um, structure to them. I mean, things like like even other you know games by other developers like Starlink, which I've played, have a bit of that kind of atmosphere to them. So this is the Toys to Life, the Toys to Life game, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, it's out there. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think it's just as an approach to the narrative, it's 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 notable, mm-hmm. shall we say? Okay. Mm. Oh. That's Bungie and Lore. Uh, it is, yes. Okay. Um, we're not going to do uh, games talk this week, um, but we are going to come back on Christmas Day and tell you all about it then, just as a little uh, a little um, farewell to the year and a Merry Christmas to all of you. 
it'll be it'll be our our gift to you at the end of the year yeah uh aren't we are we generous <laughs> so folks you know where to find us we are on twitter at misanthroplay and on the web at misanthropop.com so uh do uh do check us out you probably already know where we are if you're listening to this <laughs> um uh but you know the usual end of podcast spiel. I still haven't mastered it after all these years. So, as always, thank you for listening, folks, and we will see you on Christmas. Yeah, we look forward to you hearing us again. Tokyo Ski, I'm the Waterbed Jeff, and I'm here to say about what's going on in the USA. How the president's giving all kind of advices, but that don't stop the raising in the prices. Candidates cuts each other's throat just to get poor people out there to vote. If you look in the sky at the stars above, you read Waterbed Jeff, he was made for love. Ladies, all night long. They went for Kev to come on home And run to the roof to shoot the juice It's me that they love, they love me And now that I can feel you coming Yes, my waterbed is running All that I say is that it's time for you to lay Turns himself to prove that he's a freak 